And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool here on Blaze Podcast Network. My name is Cam Edwards, and it is a special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. That's right. It's another past tense current events edition here on Blaze Podcast Network. And I thought today we would wade into the waters of the intra-right fights. That's right. The various factions of the right who are still uh, arguing with each other and uh, calling each other names. And listen, I got to say, I think a lot of this stuff is really stupid. I do. And I have friends on both sides of this fight. There are people on both sides of this fight I think are not my friends. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Um, there are good points, I think, to be made on both sides of this fight within the right. There are, I think, a lot of dumb points being made on uh, both sides of this fight. So uh, in essence, I guess, you know, what I'm doing is I'm holding myself up above uh, both sides and saying, <clears throat> I am the only right one here. I'm not actually doing that. Um, what I hope to do over the course of this podcast is to point out a couple of things. One, that these types of fights have taken place periodically throughout uh, the the history of uh, modern republicanism or modern conservatism. Uh, two, these fights, if they result in a division uh, among the right, are not helpful uh, to either conservatism or to whatever other ism it is that we're talking about within the right. And that uh, three, the biggest threat uh, that we face today, if you are on the right, is not from some other faction on the right. And the texts that we'll be using to uh, to, to talk about this today, uh, the past tense portion of this uh, past tense current events, I'm really going to be relying on uh, one primary text. It's a book that came out in 1966, written by William F. Buckley. Uh, called The Unmaking of a Mayor. And it's about William F. Buckley's uh, candidacy uh, as a mayor of New York in 1965. It's a fascinating book in its own right, but uh, reading it uh, today uh, provides... I, I, I was just I was enthralled by what I was reading because th- there are just certain passages that sort of leap off the page and like, wow, that really reminds me of today. Uh, fake news... You've got, uh, that's, a, that's a big part, uh, actually, of William F. Buckley's book, How the Press, um, you know, uh, maligns uh, conservative candidates, what to do about it. Uh, but then also the fight, let's say, between the, uh, the, the rhinos or the, the true cons uh, and the, you know, Make America Great Again folks. The, uh, in the 60s, we would have called it the fight between the establishment and the conservatives. And what's fascinating is when you read this book, the, the 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 conservatives, let's say the insurgents, the the Buckleyites, uh, who would now I think be seen as the establishment. Well, they were not the establishment at the time, and a lot of the same criticisms that are leveled against uh, President Trump or his supporters today are the exact same types of criticism. In some cases, the exact criticisms themselves that were leveled against William F. Buckley. And the year before, in 1964, the same type of complaints and criticisms that were leveled against Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican candidate for president and really the first, quote-unquote, conservative candidate that Republicans had nominated 
since before Roosevelt was uh, elected. So again, back then you had the fight between the right. Uh, in 1965, in the New York mayor's race, that fight consisted of a battle between William F. Buckley, who was running on the conservative party ticket, and then you had John Lindsay, who was running on the Republican party ticket. John Lindsay was one of the uh, most liberal Republicans, certainly, uh, in Congress, and was probably one of the more liberal members of Congress in general uh, when he decided that he was going to run for mayor. He was uh, a very handsome guy. He was, he was kind of Beto-esque in that the press really liked him. And because he was a liberal Republican, the press also thought that he was acceptable, right? Uh, if only every Republican could be like him. And then you had William F. Buckley, who was called a fascist, whose supporters uh, were, in essence, labeled deplorables. You had, uh, in fact, I want to I share with you a little portion of an interview that William F. Buckley did on Meet the Press in 1965 as a candidate. And one of the reporters here uh, is asking William F. Buckley about principles, because supposedly one of the reasons, well, not supposedly, one of the reasons why William F. Buckley uh, got into that race was he said that the conservative principles were not represented uh, by any of these candidates, whether it was Abe Beam, who was the Democrat running, whether it was uh, John Lindsay, the Republican, there were no conservative ideas being put forward. And I want you to listen to how this reporter uh, described the ideas of William F. Buckley. Mr. Buckley, you talked a great deal about principles in this campaign. Wouldn't you agree that, that Mr. Lindsay's position in the 1964 election, to which you've taken such sharp exception, was an example of principle in politics, and that further your own principles are closer to those of Governor Wallace of Alabama and that faction of the Democratic Party than they are to the apparently dominant leadership of the Republican Party? All right, so... George Wallace was a ardent segregationist, uh, Democrat governor of Alabama, uh, ran in 1964, ran in three primaries uh, as a Democrat, challenging uh, LBJ, and, and really just kind of wanted to be a thorn in, in LBJ's side and wanted to push the segregationist wing of the Democrat Party forward. Uh, he ended up getting 43% of the Democratic vote in Maryland. He got over a third of the Democratic primary vote in Wisconsin, and I believe he got around 40% of the Democratic primary vote in Oregon. Segregationist, George Wallace. John Lindsay, as I mentioned, um, was a congressman at the time. He would not support Barry Goldwater's campaign. They were both Republicans, but he would not support Barry Goldwater's campaign because he said that Barry Goldwater's campaign was the campaign of racists, of segregationists, of the KKK. And he said, I want no part of it. So the reporter says, well, listen, wasn't that a principled decision? And aren't your principles uh, much closer in line with that of George Wallace, the racist, the guy who stood on the steps of the uh, Capitol and said, segregation now, segregation forever. Aren't, aren't those your principles? Buckley's response, by the way, was no, they're not. Uh, and then he went back to John Lindsay and John Lindsay's principles, and he said, listen, if John Lindsay wanted to make a principal decision, 
Uh, I would have had no problem with him saying the Republican Party just doesn't represent me anymore. I'm not a member of the Republican Party. I'm now a Democrat. He says that would have been a more principled decision than going out and attacking the Republican candidate for president while you are a Republican, right? And here, perhaps we have to have a, a slight digression. Today, it seems in 2019, Republican and conservative are used interchangeably. They're not. Conservatism and Republican, uh, conservatism and the Republican Party are two very different things. Conservatism is a, is a philosophy. The GOP is a party. It's a political party. And if you look at the history of the Republican Party, there have been many times where conservatism has not been the strongest or leading ideology of the party. So we can debate, you know, how conservative Trumpism is, if you want to try to define Trumpism. But by my way of thinking, that's sort of a pointless argument. Because Trumpism doesn't need to be conservative at all in order for it to fit comfortably within the Republican political party. So I think that's one big fight that the right has right now that is, is a completely unnecessary fight. Now, if you want to argue that Trumpism is inherently conservative and make your case, okay, that's fine. But again, I don't think you have to. Now, if you're a conservative, you might not like the fact that the uh, the, the dominant form of uh, uh, the dominant ideology in the Republican Party right now is not particularly conservative in some regards, or at least it's not traditionally conservative in some regards. Okay, but again, that's been the case before. All right, so let's go to the 1960 election, <laughs> presidential election. Barry Goldwater. Uh, there was a draft Goldwater campaign in 1960. It uh, was not successful. Richard Nixon was the Republican candidate. Richard Nixon was not a, a conservative at that point. He had served as uh, Eisenhower's vice president for eight years. Come into Congress, uh, Richard Nixon did as an ardent anti-communist, but then he had sort of again triangulated. He had drifted towards the center and he was not running for president in 1960 as a conservative. Um, Barry Goldwater took to the stage at the 1960 Republican convention, he uh, declined uh, the, uh, the, the nomination that he knew would be unsuccessful. He uh, encouraged all of those delegates who were going to vote for him to uh, uh, get behind Richard Nixon so that Nixon would be uh, uh, supported unanimously. And I want you to listen then to what you know, Mr. Conservative had to say to uh, those members of the Republican Party who were bitterly disappointed, angry even, that Richard Nixon was going to be their candidate. This country is too important for anyone's feelings. This country and its majesty is too great for any man, be he conservative or liberal, to stay home and not work just because he doesn't agree. Let's grow up, conservatives. Let's, if we want to take this party back, and I think we can someday, let's get to work. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Again, it, it wasn't uh, to heck with Nixon. It wasn't stay home. It wasn't never Nixon. 
it was, all right, so the person that we wanted, uh, in fact, the ideology that we wanted, we didn't get. And what was Barry Goldwater's response? Grow up. Grow up. Can you imagine, by the way, any politician telling any of their own supporters today to grow up? That's one of the reasons why I think Barry Goldwater um, inspired so much uh, almost fanatical support from uh, conservatives in 1964, but may also be one of the reasons why he didn't fare too well, because he said things that some of us are really, really wishing more politicians would say. And then there are a lot of Americans who are kind of offended that a politician would tell them to grow up, particularly if, if, if it's a politician that they like and a politician that they support. You're not supposed to tell your supporters to grow up. But in 1960, that's what Goldwater did. And I guess they listened because in 1964, Goldwater was the candidate. And it should be noted that in 1964, even though the establishment uh, GOP types were deeply, deeply unhappy that uh, Barry Goldwater was the nominee, they supported him pretty much, pretty much to a man, except for John Lindsay. Uh, Eisenhower supported Goldwater. Uh, Everett Dirksen supported uh, Goldwater, despite the fact that uh, Goldwater did not vote uh, for the Civil Rights Bill in 1964, and, and Everett Dirksen uh, uh, and about 80% of Republicans did, even though Goldwater was seen by, again, most of the quote-unquote mainstream Republicans as a, as a danger, not just as a, a kook or a weirdo, but as an actual danger, they still supported him in 1964. Because that's what you did, right? Now, in the 1964 presidential election, as I mentioned, Barry Goldwater got creamed. And that's when the recriminations began. So that by 1965, when uh, Buckley is running for mayor, decides to run for mayor, no more is it about just supporting the party, no matter who the candidate is. Um, that had sort of ripped the Band-Aid off of this uh, this argument that had been, you know, kind of simmering and festering uh, beneath the surface, but but that Goldwater loss really made it just open season on conservatism. Obviously, the left was happy to declare war on conservatism, but uh, again, many folks on the right were happy to declare war on conservatism as well. This is something that, again, I think a lot of us don't realize. It's not that we've even forgotten this because we've never had a chance to learn it. If you are, I, I'll be 45 this year. I was... Oh, was seven? No, I was six when uh, Ronald Reagan became president. And since then, conservatism and the right have been seen as synonymous with one another. And that really just isn't the case. It certainly wasn't the case back in the 1960s. I, I suspect that it is uh, not really the case today, which is one of the reasons why we are seeing this friction here. So in 1965, you had Richard Nixon, um, who was not a conservative, but was a Republican, uh, describing uh, Buckley supporters as a threat to the Republican Party, uh, even more menacing than the Birchers, than the, than the members of the John Birch Society. Uh, and during the mayoral campaign, 
Obviously, uh, William F. Buckley took his shots at, at John Lindsay for not being a conservative, for basically being a Democrat, not even really being a Republican, uh, but for being a, a, a Democrat uh, who couldn't get the Democratic nomination for mayor and so decided, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Republican on paper anyway. Uh, Lindsay uh, fought back. And I, I want to quote here from uh, unmaking, uh, the, the unmaking of a mayor. Um, on October 14th, William F. Buckley writes, this was October 14, 1965, so about a month before the election, uh, he says, Senator Javits, Jacob Javits, who was a Republican senator from New York and was, again, a very, very liberal Republican, uh, attacked Bill Buckley as, quote, the candidate of the ultra-right. The next day, Lindsay's candidate for president of the city council proclaimed that William F. Buckley was anti-Catholic. William F. Buckley accused of being anti-Catholic. William F. Buckley was a devoted Catholic. Uh, the very next day, October 16th, uh, John Lindsay himself uh, uh, claimed that, quote, on the streets, Mr. Buckley's campaign has become a racist campaign. I don't say that Mr. Buckley is a racist, but that is the effect of it on the streets. The city is a powder keg, and Buckley's doing his best to light the fuse. Again, I mean, does that not sound like that could be written today about Donald Trump? Of course, now they'd call him a racist, too, right? But uh, for a while there was, well, I don't think Donald Trump's a racist, but uh, boy, his supporters are a racist. Again, they were saying that about William F. Buckley, who, who now today would be considered uh, one of the moderate or one of the establishment Republicans. This is how it has worked for decades. And I, I wish that uh, those of us on the right uh, could see how this infighting has, has worked. And I just, I, again, I just find it fascinating that, um, you know, a couple of generations go by and uh, uh, the, the spiritual forefather of uh, the National Review folks and the, the, the quote-unquote establishment conservatives, their lineage, uh, you know, can be traced from, I, I think, you know, uh, Buckley to Breitbart, uh, to in many ways, Trump. I think there's there's a, a direct correlation and a direct you know a, a line of succession uh, among those three conservative thought leaders or among those three thought leaders of the right, I should say. It went on. It went on in this uh, mayoral race. October nineteenth, Jacob Javits, uh, again liberal Republican senator from New York, quote accused. This is from the New York Times. Accused Mr. Buckley of advocating sending people on welfare to concentration camps. Yeah, just like uh, President Trump right now sending uh, illegal immigrants to uh, internment camps, which are actually military bases that uh, the Obama administration used. But again. He, he, he was accused of wanting to send people on welfare to concentration camps. October 25th, 1965, New York Times reported that John Lindsay uh, would formally file charges with the Fair Campaign Practices Committee. He never did. Charging William F. Buckley with, quote, subtle appeals to racial prejudices. would call them dog whistles today. And with making, quote, religion an issue by noting that he and his two running mates are Catholics and by mentioning to a predominantly Catholic audience that Lindsay is a Protestant. October 27th, 1965, um, uh, Evans and Novak, Robert Novak, uh, revealed that Lindsay had been distributing endorsements of William F. Buckley by a guy named Kent Courtney, who was a white supremacist. October 27th, Buckley supporters were reported as, quote, jeering Lindsay at Wall Street. Uh-huh. As William F. Buckley wrote, the chorus 
responded full-throatedly, as though Tuscanini had wrapped his baton. Some, he writes, were intensely personal. Uh, from uh, the New York Post's Joseph Kraft, the case against Buckley is that he's an exhibitionist and a snob, an arriviste trying to take on respectability by the contemptible tactic of swanking it over the unfortunate people. In other words, he's a he's such a rich dude pandering to the uh, working class. Some, uh, Buckley says, presented highly original psychoanalytical speculation. Uh, Richard Starnes, columnist for the New York World Telegram, uh, wrote, The fact is that the Goldwaters and the Buckleys of this world are united in a desperate attempt to prove that self-government will not work. They do not oppose Lindsay because he might not be a good mayor, but simply because they're terrified of the thought he might be a good one. Buckley is a philosophical anarchist dedicated in the present instance to proving that the people of New York are doltish swine who are incapable of ruling themselves. Walter Lippmann, uh, who was a uh, columnist uh, for for decades and decades and then seen as sort of a uh, purveyor of, these, uh, of the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, he started writing back in the 1920s. Uh, he wrote on October 28, 1965, because there is in Buckley a strong streak of fanaticism, he would rather rule the wreckage than try to win an election. There is no real precedent in American politics for the kind of wrecking operation that Buckley is conducting. He uh, said there is in Buckley's performance not a scintilla of interest in the good government of the city of New York. And again, that's just a very, very small portion of the attacks that were uh, leveled against William F. Buckley, um, attacks that, again, to to my ears, sound remarkably similar uh, to the attacks being leveled against uh, President Trump and and uh, and his supporters today. Now, the interesting thing to me is that you could also make the case that uh, William F. Buckley was uh, not a Trumpian figure, but was instead a an Evan McMullen esque figure. Right. Uh, that, that uh, you know, gosh, John Lindsay had won the uh, Republican nomination fair and square. And even if he didn't really think he was a real Republican, look, he was the candidate. And now you're running off and you're, you know, tossing off this uh, third party campaign, calling yourself the real conservative, uh, splitting the vote. And that was Buckley in 65. Well, the saying is history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think there are some rhymes. You know, again, there are a lot of similarities. There are some commonalities. This was certainly not uh, a repeat. You know, 2016 and, and, and what we've uh, seen with the infight on the right since then is certainly not an exact repeat uh, of the fights that took place in the 1960s or in the 1950s. But in looking at those fights back then, you can kind of get a sense of, of where the right was headed and where we are today. So in the mayoral election, uh, John Lindsay ended up winning narrowly the uh, mayorality of New York City. Uh, he eventually, not even eventually, a few years later, left the Republican Party. In uh, 1972, he decided that he was now a Democrat, which at that point he had been, in essence, a Democrat, uh, for, you know, going on a decade, uh, but he made it official in 1972. William F. Buckley uh, did not win public office ever, but his brother Jim did five years, just five years after William F. Buckley 
uh, ran for mayor in New York. Jim Buckley ran for senator in New York on the conservative party ticket, and he won. And again, it was a three-way race. You had a Democrat who also had the uh, the uh, Liberal Party nomination. You had a Republican, uh, and then you had the conservative. And James Buckley was the conservative senator from New York, elected in 1970, and served, uh, I believe, until 1977, I think it was. He did, did not win re-election in uh, 76, six-year term, right? So... The goal that William Buckley had had uh, set out to achieve was not to be elected mayor of New York. He knew that wasn't going to happen, but he wanted to provide a, a roadmap uh, for conservatism going forward. He wanted to provide a shot in the arm to conservatives who uh, felt demoralized after Barry Goldwater's loss in 1964. And I think it's fair to say, at least on some level, um, he wanted to uh, use this experience to to help uh, the cause of conservatism, uh, which also included the magazine National Review, uh, as well as you know his own public speaking and writing. He would uh, not long after uh, the, the mayor's race, uh, you know, start his career in television, which lasted for decades and decades. But in the afterword of the unmaking of a mayor. Uh, it's interesting. So he's writing in 1965. This is 15 years before Ronald Reagan is going to get elected president. This is three years before Richard Nixon is going to get elected president, not as a conservative, uh, but again, as a, a quote unquote, you know, moderate or modern uh, Republican. Um, it, it's, it's the nadir or close to it of the conservative movement and he writes for his audience at that time. He's not writing for posterity, um, which I think is is actually kind of valuable for us when we read this 50-plus years later. One of the things that he writes about is fake news. Um, when he, Even before he got into the mayor's race, he gave a speech at the Ladies' Pancake League, which the press... Uh, completely misreported. And he said, uh, he wrote about it quite a bit in The Unmaking of a Mayor. And he said one of the reasons why he wrote about it so much, he said, was to capture the realities of the polemical situation in our time, rather than to try to do something to alter them. I thought that was really interesting. And so what he's saying is I wanted to write to acknowledge and to demonstrate what the media bias is right now, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not writing to change it. Now, for us today on the right, we're trying very hard to change the uh, polemical situation of our time. We're fighting for our ability to speak out on social media, to not be deplatformed, uh, to be quoted accurately, to not be demonized by the press. We're fighting for all of those things. And William F. Buckley's position was kind of work within the system. He said it all has to do with the zeitgeist, which, because its path, like a tornado's, is set, has perforce to be accommodated by practical men. It isn't very useful to stand in front of it and blow, though it is useful to chart its course to discover how to get out of its way.
He says, I'm talking, of course, about what politicians need to know. The philosopher must be prepared to stand in the way of the Furies, to oppose the spirit of the age, even if his shirt is ripped off his back. The politicians and the favor seekers need to know that this is the age when a Linus Pauling can sign a statement charging that Harry Truman and Thomas Dewey have brought the nation to the brink of war and fascism and get away with it. By which he says, I mean, proceed with his career and his avocations relatively unreproached by the community's standard keepers. So first of all, the distinction between a political philosopher and a politician uh, is worth noting and one that we have probably blurred quite a bit uh, these days. But again, you know, he says, if you're a if you're a a conservative philosopher, if you're all about the philosophy, not about the day to day politics, but about the philosophy of conservatism. Yep. Stand in there, face that zeitgeist head on, take the body blows and uh, and keep fighting because you can. What do you have to lose? If you're a politician, on the other hand, there is something for you to lose. Elections. And so how to get out of the way of those loaded questions and the false reporting, how to operate uh, within this system that you are not likely to change, probably still pretty good advice for politicians, I would think. He said the lesson for now is that this is the way things are and are likely to be for quite a while. The lesson for practical men is to maneuver within an area of possibilities more meticulously charted. The second point that uh, he raised in the afterword to the unmaking of a mayor is this. He said, conservatism in America is rather a force than a political movement. The Republican Party, he writes, which has been its political vehicle on and off, faces a dilemma that is quite probably, though not necessarily, insuperable. The GOP, in 1965, he wrote, is at the moment without a doctrine, for the very good reason that conservative doctrine, with which, however inadequately, the GOP has identified itself in the past, seems to lack, for the time being, the mass appeal without which a major party is unviable. Now, I think Buckley was and is right about the fact that conservatism is a, is a force rather than a political movement, and certainly it is not a political party, even if you want to capitalize and call it the conservative party in New York. Um, and the, the, the fortunes of conservatism as a movement uh, ebbs and flows. In 1965, as I said, we were sort of at, uh, at, at low tide for conservatism. As a matter of fact, uh, William F. Buckley even wrote, uh, I think the probabilities are against the survival of the Republican Party as a major party, defined as a party that offers effective opposition and from time to time exercises power. He says even under the moderate Eisenhower, the Republican exemplar according to the rules of prevailing opinion, the registration figures continue to polarize. Two years before the good general came into office, the natural, uh, national registration figures were 45% to 33% in favor of the Democrats, according to the Gallup poll. When Eisenhower left the pulpit eight years later, the infidels had in fact increased, the figures having separated to 47% registered Democrats and 30% registered Republicans. That's after eight years of a Republican in office. And in this, William F. Buckley was really, really wrong. Uh, the Republican Party was not done as a uh, as a force conservatism was not done uh, as a force right as i said two years after this book came out in uh, 1966 the year after the new york mayor's election uh richard nixon won a, a you know won the office of the presidency something that most people thought was inconceivable at that point but 
1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson couldn't even run for re-election because of how unpopular he was. 1972, the moderate Richard Nixon, who, you know, was opening up uh, relations with, with communist China, uh, he swept the United States. It was a massive landslide victory. And all of a sudden now, it wasn't that, uh, con- I mean, conservatism, believe me, it was still kind of like, on the, eh, not sure about that. But liberalism, as represented by George McGovern, the Democratic candidate in 1972, that was seen as even more out there than, uh, than the dangers of conservatism, which, of course, with Richard Nixon being a moderate, uh, those dangers were, were mitigated. Uh, McGovern in 72 was sort of the, the Goldwater of the left, right? And that improved the fortunes of Republicans. Six years after Nixon resigned uh, in, in the midst of the Watergate scandal, you would have thought, again, the Watergate scandal would have been the nail in the coffin for the Republican Party as a major party. But six years after Nixon resigned, Ronald Reagan wins the White House as a conservative, not as uh, a, uh, an, an echo, but as a choice, uh, as somebody who had been you know, toiling in the political vineyards uh, for the GOP since the 1960s. His, his political debut, actually, in 1964, well, his, his, his real political coming out, I guess, in 1964, uh, in that famous uh, speech, A Time for Choosing, that was given on behalf of Barry Goldwater, running for president, right? Reagan fulfilled that, that dream uh, that had been birthed uh, 16 years earlier. And, 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 you know, if you read uh, William F. Buckley in 1966, you would have thought none of that was going to happen. That instead the Republican Party was going to splinter. You're going to have a, a, a conservative party. Uh, you were going to have a, a rump Republican Party. There were sort of like the Democrat lights. Again, a lot of that sounds like some of the speculation of today. Where you got the Never Trumpers going off and you've got, uh, you know, the Bill Crystals of the world and they're doing their thing. And, I, you know, all right, so here's where... <laughs> Here's where I, I, I think I might get uh, a little controversial. I think conservatives today are very much interested in political philosophy and are not as interested in actual politics. If you are a conservative, there are, is no room for rhinos in your political philosophy because they're not conservatives in many ways. Um, if you are a conservatarian, if you are, you know, part of that leg of the stool that, uh, that, that, that has some libertarian beliefs, um, there's really no room in your political philosophy for those on the right who would use the power of the state to um, uh, curtail individual liberties, uh, even in the name of, you know, order or security or, or traditional values. But if you want to win, if you want to be in charge... If you want to have a majority of the votes in Congress, if you want to have the White House, then it becomes less about political philosophy and it has to become more about politics. And when, when it becomes about politics, then there is some room for rhinos. There has to be room in your political party for those that you agree with 80% of the time, 70% of the time, maybe even 60% of the time. I don't know that there's room for those in the party that you agree with 20% of the time. Now we're getting again into John Lindsay territory. 
But, but there has to be room for some disagreement if you want to have a successful political party. I think it was easier to realize this in the 1960s than it is today. Because in the 1960s, you didn't have a conservative media industry like you do today. In 1965, you had National Review. You had human events. You may have had a, uh, a, a radio host or two around the country that was uh, right of center, but probably not out-and-out conservative. This was, this, there was no industry there. Uh, conservatives realized, as, as William F. Buckley wrote in 1966, he said, you know, con- conservatism isn't really capturing the public's interest these days. So in order for conservatives to have a seat at the table, uh, they had to recognize that they were a part of, and just a part of, a larger uh, party. Today, we've got a pretty sprawling conservative media industry. Uh, everything, again, from the most popular cable news network on television uh, to, you know, platforms like, like this, like The Blaze or Daily Wire or The Federalist or, again, National Review or Human Events uh, or Talk Radio, Rush Limbaugh. Again, there's a, a massive amount of conservative media to be consumed. And in that conservative media, uh, you will inevitably find conflict. And, and honestly, that's, that's okay. As we pointed out here, conflict within the right is nothing new. But I think it's most beneficial when it's about policy, when it's about politics and not about personality. William F. Buckley didn't run against John Lindsay because he thought John Lindsay uh, was just a, a dork uh, or a ninny. He thought that John Lindsay's ideas were bad for New York City. He thought that they were not representative uh, of the Republican Party, much less conservatism. And, and that's where he wanted to fight. That fight uh, was in the marketplace of ideas. A lot of the fights that we're seeing today on the right, to me, seem to be more about personality than they do real policy. If you want to boil it down to... I wouldn't even call it a policy, but if you want to boil it down to, you know, the the real fracture point, it's uh, do you fight or do you not fight? Do you fight or do you opine? Are you an uh, are you an activist or are you a pundit? And I think we are at a time where we need to fight. How we fight is up to us, and there is no one right way on how to fight. That, again, is, is one of those, I think, uh, arguments that just misses the point that we're having on the right right now. Uh, it's not that, if, look, if you, uh, if you don't like David French and you think he doesn't fight, you're wrong. I mean, David French has been fighting in the uh, courtrooms uh, for over a decade for conservative causes. Now, does he call people names? No. Uh, do you think that maybe we're at a time when civility is uh, uh, not necessary? We've got to put civility aside in order to you know, get down and dirty and, and fight in the gutter? Okay. I mean, you can have that point of view. But I think it's an equally valid point of view to say, listen, 
uh, I will fight, but I'm not going to fight and lose my own humanity or lose my own sense of civility, not because of my opponents, not because of the people I'm fighting against, not because they deserve some sort of civility, but because that's who I am. There's room for both points of view. There's room for both sets of tactics on the right. And even more important than how you fight is who you fight. William F. Buckley may have been running against John Lindsay. He may have been a conservative running against a Republican. But ultimately, who he was fighting were progressives. And, and whether they label themselves as Republicans or, or liberals, that's who he was fighting. I guess back then they would have called themselves liberals. Uh, liberal Republican, liberal Democrat. He was fighting the forces of liberalism. Today, we've kind of gone past liberalism. Now, the fight that we are facing really is with socialism. That's your opponent, if you're on the right. Your, your, your primary opponent is not somebody who's, who you think is, is a little bit further to the left than you are, or somebody who you think is a little bit further to the right, or even just further to the extreme, to the friends than you are. The real fight is with those who are advocating the end of capitalism, the end of representative democracy, the end of the Constitution, the end of the Electoral College, the end of individual liberty, the end of free speech, the end of the right to keep and bear arms. That's what we're fighting against. And what we're fighting for, I think, is largely the same, no matter if you come down on the side of uh, we fight or we must be civil. We're fighting for individual liberty. We're fighting for individual rights. We are fighting for the freedom to live our lives with some private sphere still intact that the state cannot touch. We are fighting for our ability to speak our mind. We are fighting for our ability to think our mind. This is the most important fight that we face as conservatives. Not whose website do you read? Not whose podcast do you listen to? Not who do you watch in prime time? Or who do you follow on Twitter? Who do you think's a real conservative versus who you think's a cuck? In the grand scheme of things, none of that matters. Not to the movement and the philosophy of conservatism. It may matter to the personalities uh, involved individually. It may matter in terms of you know who gets the clicks and who gets the attention and the love and the uh, big contracts. But in terms of our individual liberty, our ability, again, to, to live our life with a, a place that remains untouched by the heavy hand of government, none of those fights, none of those personality fights, none of those uh, inner Nicene uh, uh, battles, you know, just uh, what, what, what portion of the right is, is right. None of that is really important. And none of it's going away. <laughs> I hate to say it, but none of it's going away because we do have an industry because people are interested in getting your clicks. They are interested in, in getting you to listen to their podcast. They are interested in uh, attracting you as a fan of them and of what they do. And conflict drives our media these days. 
not just cable news, not just your local news, not the front page of the paper. Conservative media as well thrives on conflict. And you got to vary up the targets, otherwise the audience gets bored. So sure, we can go after AOC, we can go after Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren and the other, you know, 20 people who are running for president uh, on the left, but you got to switch it up a little bit every now and then. You got to pick fights with your, uh, with your with with the folks on your own side. I mean, I don't think you really do, but that's the conventional wisdom. I, I would love to see a day, and again, I'm not optimistic or confident that it's going to happen, but I would love to see a day when the conservative media was less about, uh, read me or listen to me because I'm the true conservative. I'm the one who knows what I'm talking about. And more, yeah, you know what? I agree with 90% of what that other person says over there. But the reason why you should listen to me is because you like the way I say it. Maybe I make you laugh. Maybe I make you think. Uh, maybe you really, really enjoy my writing and it's just imminently readable. But there are lots of other reasons to like somebody and to follow somebody other than, well, they're the one true word when it comes to conservatism. It's a philosophy. It's not a religion. There is no one true voice. But if you listen closely, you may still be able to hear the ghost of Barry Goldwater thundering in the distance Grow up, conservatives. So there you go. You can find the book, The Unmaking of a Mayor. It is uh, by Encounter Books, 50th Anniversary Edition. Uh, Afterward, by the way, by Joe Scarborough, which again, is just one of those fascinating little things here because uh, in 1965, (laughs) Joe Scarborough would have hated William F. Buckley. Joe Scarborough would have been a John Lindsay fan in 1965. And maybe in uh, 2015, before the rise of Trump, uh, Joe Scarborough, well, I guess, you know, he kind of was on the Trump bandwagon, right? So, again, it's all about the uh, the popularity contest with uh, Joe Scarborough. Anyway, you don't have to read the afterword by Joe Scarborough, but uh, Buckley's book itself, The Unmaking of a Mayor, is fascinating. And if you really want to blow your mind... Go and read Buckley's The Unmaking of a Mayor, and then immediately following Buckley's book, go pick up Andrew Breitbart's Righteous Indignation. Because right now, it, you know, it seems like like the, the Breitbart world and the, uh, the world of National Review, the Buckley world, again, polar opposites of the conservative spectrum. I think William F. Buckley, I think Andrew Breitbart were two sides of the same coin. It just has a lot of the folks who are attacking each other within the confines of the right. Uh, have a lot more in common than they have differences. Even if you think they're jerks, even if you think that they're, what, uh, cucks or cowards or bullies or morons, what, what, whatever it is you think about these folks that you disagree with on the right, if you can't, if we can't figure out a way to try to work with each other, whenever possible, and to get as many uh, individuals in these, you know, disparate parts of the conservative movement to come to that same understanding that, look, we're not always going to agree with one another. We may not agree with each other on big stuff, but when we find areas of agreement, we have to work together because otherwise we're toast. If we don't get that message, if we don't start living that political reality, that we can separate the philosophy from the politics. Um, we're not 
I repeat, we are not going to be happy. None of us are going to be happy come Election Day 2020. All right, so we'll have a, uh, another past tense current events at some point. Uh, I'm, I'm picking up a couple of books by a guy named Frank Chodorov, who was one of the founders of libertarianism uh, back in the 1950s. I've got a couple of his books here. One is a crowd <laughs> and uh, out of step, the autobiography of an individualist. So maybe the next time we uh, crack open some old books, We'll be talking about that uh, that libertarian leg of the conservative stool. In the meantime, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, make stuff. And we will talk to you soon with another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool here on Blaze Podcast Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 